Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. Caroline Whitten thought she was going to play French horn professionally, but panic and anxiety had other ideas. Fortunately, orchestra administration turned out to be her true home, ultimately leading her to co-found the Me Too Orchestra with her husband, conductor Ronald Brownstein. Brownstein's bipolar diagnosis left him unable to find work, and Me Too is the world's only classical music organization created by and for individuals with mental illnesses and the people who support them. Caroline and I talk about the power of music to create change, what happens when you create stigma-free zones, the documentary Orchestrating Change that chronicles Me Too's journey, and more. Here's my conversation with Caroline Whitten. Caroline, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Thank you so much. It's great to be speaking with you today. So I start everybody off with the same question, which is, were you a creative kid or did you discover your creative side later on? Oh, gosh, I don't think that I was a creative kid. I definitely uh, was playing music at a pretty young age. I'm the, the child of professional musicians. So me and my brother and my sister, you know, we all started piano at a young age. I played the flute. I played the violin, finally settled on French horn. So I I was musical, but I I hesitate to say that I was creative. Um, yeah, you know, and that may just be because I was I was classically trained. And as a child, you know, that really meant reading the notes. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think, and there is some creativity in that, but, um, it was just such a structured kind of, uh, setting where I was taking lessons and I was, you know, the aim was perfection in terms of playing the notes, what was on the page, that kind of thing. So, um, I'm going to say I was musical, not creative. That's so interesting. <laughs> Because my gut instinct is to say that every kid is creative, but you have a really good point about that kind of classical training and the focus on, you know, getting everything right that I had not really thought about before. That's really interesting. You know, it's something I think about a lot. I I think in in part because I kind of regret the fact that I never learned uh, how to improvise that I, you know, I'm not, I'm not even a great sight reader. I can't just sit down at the piano and do a bunch of chord changes. Like I really, all of my musical education was about learning the notes on the page. Yes, there was room for interpretation. Um, but very often I felt like that was so strongly guided by my teachers that there maybe wasn't even that much room for me to insert myself into that. And I I never really felt like I had such a strong musical voice uh, that, that I needed to do that, honestly. I mean, I think, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm not uh, a professional musician these days. You know, I play for fun. Uh, I try to hit the right notes. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I think I, generally speaking, I think I'm more creative now as an adult in my administrative work, in my you know vision work for my organization uh, than I am perhaps as an artist. Otherwise, just if that makes sense, it, it kind of does. 
in a way that I don't really expect, but, <laughs> but it okay. does. And, and you know, you I'll had me that. thinking about like my piano lessons as a kid. And I, and I'm wondering now if maybe that's why I rebelled against my piano lessons after three years, you know, and I, I'm going to have to think about that a little bit. There's a reason why I don't play a piano now. And it's because I only lasted for those three years. <laughs> you know, as an aside, I have to tell you, I literally just read uh, an op-ed in today's New York Times that was written by John Batiste, uh, the very you know popular former band leader for mm-hmm. the Colbert show. And uh, he spoke about his early time at Juilliard as a student. And told the story, which was very unexpected to me, about how he really was always getting in trouble with the higher-ups and with the administration because they had a very uh, kind of staid, strict view of what his jazz education needed to be. And he felt stifled. Uh, he could not please them and also please his, his inner self. Mm-hmm. And so it got to a point where they said, you got to drop out or take a year off and figure it out. And, and he ended up taking a year off and he went back, you know, as a, a more mature person, a more mature musician, but still, and was able, you know, obviously like got the degree, you know, did, Mm -hmm. has done wonderful things since then, but now he's a, a trustee at Juilliard and he's in a position where he's able to work with the leadership at Juilliard, which is, you know, has changed over Mm -hmm. the years. Um, to try to make sure that they're accommodating students who are maybe like he was several yeah. years ago when he attended. And it, it just got me thinking about, you know, that it, it's just interesting to think about people who really have such a, a, a strong inner sense of their musical identity and their creativity. And I, uh, as a music student, that was not me. Mm-hmm. Um I was definitely someone who just kind of went within that uh, strict kind of vision of what my teachers in my school, you know, expected for me. And um, I just, yeah, I think, you know, I had a great education and I, I, I love the fact that I have all this, you know, very wonderful music training in my background and that I can enjoy playing some music today, but my heart really is in administration. And I do think there's a certain amount of creativity that, uh, you know, I, maybe it's just me. I think of creativity and the arts automatically, mm-hmm. but I think there's creativity in fundraising and marketing and, uh, and strategic planning and all that, you know, everything that I'm, I'm so lucky to now be doing on a daily basis too. And I think that's where I found my creative voice. I think that there's creativity in everything. So I'm glad that you said that. Right. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. Because we all default to the arts, but it's way more than just the arts. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, I mean, you said you landed on French horn. How did that end up leading into what you're doing now? I finished my bachelor's in in French horn performance at the Eastern School of Music. And I had uh, a graduate assistantship. I was going to go on and get my master's and basically had um, kind of a breakdown. I mean, I I didn't end up hospitalized or anything, but I was at that time, I was um, soon to be diagnosed with 
panic disorder, anxiety disorder, and depression. Um, and when I went to the school where I was going to get my master's and I, I had a big day of playing placement auditions where they decide, you know, where basically where they're going to place you in different ensembles and things. And it just didn't go well. And my nerves were shot and my, uh, what I didn't realize were panic attacks were just kind of swirling all around me. And my, my baby brother had gone with me to to the school to kind of help, you know, help me get moved in and stuff. And I remember looking at him at dinner that night and going, I don't think this is the right path for me. I don't think I can do this. And it was this huge realization um, that my uh, my anxiety was too overwhelming. Um, and that it was maybe a little bit ridiculous for me to be pursuing a path in performance, which was, you know, at that point, I just had to accept it was obviously exacerbating the anxiety and panic. So made this decision to drop that plan for the master's degree. And I went back home to Columbus, Georgia, moved back in with mom and dad. And I kind of, you know, I kind of set up shop for myself there for a couple of years. I was um, teaching horn lessons, some private lessons. I was playing in some kind of local and regional orchestras. And I started working uh, part-time for the Columbus Symphony there in town. My mom was uh, the associate concertmaster there. So she kind of nudged the music director and I, I became the music librarian. Then I started doing some office work. And then my mother and I helped to found the Youth Orchestra of Greater Columbus. So that was like pivotal for me. I suddenly was in an office where I was doing everything. Like I was managing this burgeoning little youth orchestra program, the music, the kids, the fundraising letters, the data entry, like all of it, the concert production. And I loved it. I mean, it was, I just, I knew that was the path I wanted to take. And a couple of years later, I got my first, um, what I consider my first big job uh, with the Savannah Symphony in Savannah, Georgia. And I sold my horn to one of my private students then at the time so that I had enough money to buy a clunker of a car <laughs> and drive across the state and really, you know, launch my orchestral admin career. So wow. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the story of kind of that first transition from being, being a, you know, a, what I thought was going to be a full-time musician, but really going into the administrative side of the, of the gig. Yeah. And, and it's so interesting that you know, you had that realization right away that this was not the right thing, especially because so many people would be like, no, I have to keep going. I have to keep doing this thing, regardless of the fact that, you know, they're paying a very high price for it. Yeah, there's nothing like a series of panic attacks to really let you know that, you know, I mean, I've never considered doing anything else. Right. I was raised by professional musicians. There was no other path as far as I was concerned. And then, you know, having these these attacks where you literally feel like you are going to die. You're having a heart attack at the age of 22. It makes no sense. 
you know, it, it just, um, that's, that's pretty powerful. And it was so helpful that I, you know, that I had this opportunity to start doing some part-time work on the administrative side and, and it really, yeah, pretty quickly there was this epiphany of, oh, I love being the person who helps put the musicians on the stage. That's actually a really comfortable and, and enjoyable role for me. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I am lucky. You know, I, uh, I also think I was very lucky to have a, a wonderful four years at the Eastman School to get to tour internationally to study with a great private teacher. And, you know, even though after getting uh, this degree that I worked so hard for to, to realize that that was not going to be the ultimate path, I still rely on those experiences and those skills like every day in some way. Sure. Um, you can relate to yeah. all the people that you're working with who are going on stage, which you might exactly. not have as much otherwise. Exactly. You know, I, I, I think about how, um, I think about something as ostensibly simple as setting up the chairs for an orchestra rehearsal. And very often I'll, you know, I, I've like arrived at a rehearsal in the past and I'll start setting up the chairs and someone will say, oh, can I help? And I very quickly realize, even as someone in the orchestra, they don't know where all the chairs go. Or it's like if they sit in the string section, they have no idea who sits in the back of the orchestra. <laughs> they, they couldn't tell you how many trumpets or horns there are to save their lives. And it's, you know, I take so much pride in knowing exactly how much room you need between the seats, where the stand should be placed. I mean, that kind of detail, you know, on a very basic level is what makes musicians comfortable. It lets them know that they're being taken care of, uh, that they're being treated professionally, even if this is not a professional setting. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great to have that skill set. And then on top of it, to have been able to develop, you know, new skills uh, in regards to fundraising and marketing and and strategic planning and working with a board. Um, but it all it all starts with really understanding what the musicians need. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because you don't want to be playing a violin and whacking your neighbor in the face with your elbow while you're doing it. Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's not a good idea. Nobody, nobody likes nobody that. Likes that. <laughs> nobody at all. Do you think that your mother kind of had an instinct that this was the right place for you? Or do you think it was just random chance? Oh, it's so funny that you ask that. Um, I uh, was so horrified that night when I called my parents. Uh, from this school where I was going to get my master's. And I, it was like my worst nightmare coming true to have to call my incredible parents, you know, and say, I don't think I can do this. And it was my mother who immediately said, you know, I've been wondering if this was the right path for you. Just come home. It's okay. Oh, Whew. Having had a moment like that myself, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that a lot. Right? <laughs> you know, my mom, she she knew. And of course, my dad, you know, I, of course, was happy to welcome me back home. But I, I will never forget my mother in that moment, just not skipping a beat and saying, it's okay, come home. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's but what you, you know what? you feel like the world's falling apart. 
Yeah. You know what? My mother was a violinist and she also struggled with depression and anxiety. So I, you know, we never really talked about, uh, in that moment, whether or not she, she was perceiving that in me, but she definitely knew me well enough to know that maybe this just wasn't going to work out and that was okay. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's the best. It's, it's such a huge, huge relief in a moment like that. Yeah. 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 Thanks, mom. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. So you went to Savannah. Yeah. And that's what a great city. Yeah. Great town. I was there for a couple of years and, uh, you know, I'm I'm sorry to say that that orchestra no longer exists. They actually, uh, folded several years ago and I, I went there, that was in 1994, I'm going to say, or 994, 95. And the musicians were just coming off of like their second strike, their second, you know, consecutive contract negotiation that resulted in the strike. And they were back at work, but it, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't necessarily a happy, a happy orchestra. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were, we were kind of, you know, those of us on the staff got along great. It was a great first job for me, especially because I was, I was director of community engagement, which included a lot of education work. So I was like the person who organized, um, you know, contacting all the schools and having all these kids bust in for concerts. I worked really closely with the assistant conductor on those, and he was a dream to work with. And uh, so I, I was kind of in the happier end of of, <laughs> of the programs, but uh, my boss, the the executive director who hired me, left after a year, and we had a new boss come in. A lot of the staff left. Not long after I left, the orchestra went on strike again and subsequently um, folded. But you know, it was two years where I lived in an incredibly uh, beautiful, like you know, history of rich, uh, a city of rich history and just a very colorful place to be. Um, and, and I got to cut my teeth on kind of some big orchestral events and programs. It was, it was very, very cool. Um, but I was also pretty eager to get out of there because (laughs) it was quickly becoming toxic, which happens, you know, Mm -hmm. it happens. Yeah, it can happen anywhere. Yeah. It can happen anywhere. So how did you, I mean, what, what came between that and Me Too? And my current job. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I left the Savannah Symphony and I ended up taking a job uh, with the Long Bay Symphony in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Myrtle Beach, not exactly um, as, as you might imagine, being a capital of classical music <laughs> in the country, um, you know, p- most of the people there were far more interested in like, you know, golf and country music than they were in classical music. But I had, you know, I had a year there of being being the executive director. So again, like really getting to kind of cut my teeth on financials and board work for the first time. And then I was, 
I, I honestly, I was pretty eager to get out of Myrtle Beach. Um, so I had resumes out around the country and I got a call from the Vermont Youth Orchestra Association. And I distinctly remember sitting in my office in South Carolina uh, and, and picking up the phone and going, oh, gosh, Vermont, that's like up near Canada somewhere, right? <laughs> I mean, I was I was 28 at the time. I'd never been that far north. I thought, gosh, that's way up there. And, and, and the gentleman who was interviewing me kind of said, like, are you serious about this? You know, would you really move? Oh, it sounds like your family, everybody's in the South. Would you move? And I said, yeah, you know, for the right job mm-hmm. and the right benefits and all that, you know, yeah, I would consider it. And I ended up flying to Vermont. And um, that was the beginning of my uh, my tenure, my 13-year tenure as the executive director of the Vermont Youth Orchestra Association. And it was, in so many ways, a dream job. I, I mean, I loved it. I, really, I felt like I hit the jackpot. The first thing that we did when I got there was to start a feasibility study and launched a $2 million capital campaign to create this gorgeous uh, facility for the youth orchestra and for other groups in the community to use. Um, we renovated a historic drill hall, a, a cavalry drill hall. And so here I am, you know, at the age of, of 29, 30, and I'm running around in my construction hat and going to all these construction <laughs> and design meetings and meeting with acquisitions and writing Presby grants. And just, I mean, like doing really big work that felt, you know, it felt important. It was important. I mean, it was it was music for hundreds of, of kids in Vermont. And it was, you know, surprisingly became one of the biggest youth orchestra programs in the country during the time that I was there. We just grew exponentially. And it, it was a great, great job. Um, and then we lost our music director. He moved on to a different job. And we launched an international search for our new music director. And da da da, pivotal moment. That is when Ronald Brownstein entered the scene. And my life changed forever. <laughs> In lots of ways. <laughs> so many ways. So many ways. So, did he came in for Vermont first? Yeah. Okay. So we, we launched the search and we had, we, you know, did all the interviews, did all the resumes. We got it down to three candidates and Ronald came in and I'm looking at his resume and he's, you know, a Juilliard grad. He won the Herbert von Karajan International Conducting Competition, like the biggest competition in the world at that time, especially uh, you know, gold medal. He'd guest conducted all over Europe. He taught it, went back and taught at Juilliard. He taught at the Manor School. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, he's like in his mid fifties. I guess he's just ready to kind of get out of the city and come to Vermont. Like a lot of people are and, and obviously enjoys working with kids. He'd done that at Juilliard and the Manor School, you know, could we be more lucky? And so I remember watching his audition and I literally had tears uh, you know, coming out of my eyes, watching him work on stage with a hundred kids and somehow just 
like magically making it feel like chamber music. Um, he transformed the sound of these kids over the course of 15 minutes from something that was already quite good into something that was, was just special mm-hmm. uh, in a new way. And uh, yeah, so he got the job and he packed up his bags, he, you know, from New York and he came to Vermont and I, 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 I will back up to say when I picked Vermont, when I picked Ronald up at the airport for his audition, I immediately thought, gosh, I think this, I feel like this guy has been through the ringer. Like life has mm. been tough. He, I, I kind of de- like immediately detected some depression, a darkness about him. I can't really explain that. You know, it wasn't, I'm not a clinician, I, 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 but I just, it was an impression I got. It was mm-hmm. almost like I could see this cloud over him. Well, once he moved to Vermont, we started working together. I started to also see this, uh, uh, the upside of that, of this energy. And at the time, I didn't know what that was. It was several months before he would disclosed to me that his diagnosis was bipolar disorder one. And when he let me know that it explained so many things, you know, why he was kind of a, a different person mm-hmm. uh, every day when he entered the office, I never really knew if he was going to be up or down. And, uh, but I knew he was just this highly creative kind of quirky guy, but a lot of the staff around me, my staff uh, were kind of questioning like, uh, you know, we don't, I don't know if this guy's okay. I don't know if this is going to work out. And I kept, I, I stayed focused on the fact that what I saw him do on the stage was absolutely transformative. And that if he couldn't work an Excel spreadsheet and he wanted to decorate his office with orange fly swatters, which yes, he did. <laughs> okay. Quirky genius. I'm fine with that. Just keep doing what you're doing with the kids. I mean, that mm-hmm. was my thing. But the staff thought, I mean, they just said, you know, he's making our lives more difficult. He doesn't have a very organized brain in the way that we're accustomed to. And eventually one of them, you know, said to me in an email, we think this guy is mentally ill and we don't know how to work with that. And I, that kind of sucked the wind out of me. And when Ronald did finally disclose his illness to the board of directors, they said, it's too late. We've already voted to fire you. And at that point, boy, I mean, really had the rug pulled out from under me. Um, (laughs) They fired him, but they asked him to stay on for another three months to finish the next (laughs) concert cycle. Yes. Thank you for very appropriately laughing. It made no sense. Um, and, it, you know, I don't want to rehash all of that situation, but it was it was really absurd and it was heartbreaking. And it was uh, for Ronald. I mean, it sent him into a spiral where he had suicidal ideation. I mean, this you could imagine someone with bipolar disorder. He's getting situated in a new town with a new job. He's got a new therapist, a new apartment, you know, and like trying to adjust to this new life. And he gets the door closed on him. He really started to spiral, and yet he showed up every week and did the rehearsals, and he did the final performances, and then he sued them (laughs) for discrimination, you know, for a couple of other things. Um, 
But he sued. He settled out of court after several months. And during that time, I left the organization as well. And during that time where things were kind of going through mediation and we were both in between, in between jobs, <laughs> shall we say, unemployed, he came to me and he said, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I can't go back to sending out resumes and applying for jobs in part because his story about getting fired and then suing uh, on the basis of discrimination had been picked up by all the newspapers. I mean, picked up by the AP. It was in the papers in Boston. It, it went beyond Vermont. And he said, you know, that, that they've effectively shut down my career in terms of what it, what it has always looked like. So I need to start a new orchestra for people like me. I want to start a bipolar orchestra. And I kind of took a deep breath. <laughs> he said, will you do this with me? And I said, okay, let's talk about what that, what that means. Um, what, what is that, what does that look like? Uh, and that was, you know, that was, that was the seed for what has now become me too. And what has been this great source of, of joy in our lives over the last, uh, you know, 11 or 12 years now since we, since we launched, but uh, we eventually decided what that means is that we want to have an orchestra for people that is uh, non-auditioned, that uh, doesn't require fees. We want to remove the barriers for, for participation and we want to heavily recruit people who are living with a mental health diagnosis. So that's how it started. Oh, and, and in, there, in there somewhere, Ronald and I started to date. <laughs> did I forget to mention that? Yes, I did. I did okay. say, okay, we'll do, we'll do this. But, uh, you know, let's, let's date too, because we have been good friends for, for quite a while. But, uh, yeah, I was pretty much interested in more than that from day one. That's so cool. It was, it's pretty cool. I got to say. So cool. So when you're starting something like this and I've never I've never started an orchestra. I have to imagine most people have never started an orchestra, but if you're going to do things like remove the barriers financially for people to participate, you've got to be coming up with money somewhere. Did the fact that yeah. this whole situation with the lawsuit and all of the rest of it was out there make that more difficult or did it maybe actually make it easier because of what you were trying to do or did it not really have an effect much at all? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I mean, uh, you know, it's never easy, right? Fundraising is, is never really an easy thing. And in terms of our experience in the early days with me too, uh, I think a lot of people were kind of confused. Like, wh what do you mean you're going to have a, you're going to have a mental health orchestra. Like it just, it took, a, it took people a while to kind of wrap their heads around that. So frankly, we were broke for, you know, two or three years. And our, both of our sets of parents were like underwriting us. Yes, there was some settlement money from the lawsuit that we, you know, helped us survive for a while. But um, yeah, we relied on some government programs. I mean, it, it it was really, really tough. And eventually, 
you know, I had started an orchestra before. My mom and I back in Georgia had started this youth orchestra in Columbus, Georgia. So I knew all about establishing yourself as a 501c3 nonprofit. I knew about, you know, building a board, uh, you know, how to, how to do the, the kind of the basic fundraising tasks and all that. So we just, we just implemented it and it's just taken time. And, uh, you know, now looking back after 12 years of this work, like it's, it's kind of incredible to me the way it's grown in some ways it's felt so painfully slow, but in other ways I look at it and I'm like, wow, we, you know, we've accomplished so much over the years. Um, but, but it was difficult in the beginning for sure. I mean, uh, we didn't, we didn't have like a big lump sum of money to, to start the program with. And, and yet we still felt like we can't charge people money to be in this thing. I mean, first of all, the whole idea, we didn't know if anybody was going to come to that first rehearsal anyway. Like, really, are people going to going to come out and say, sure, hey, I'm depressed. I want to join your orchestra. And yeah, they did. Like, <laughs> I mean, that was kind of the amazing thing was that, you know, we started getting emails. The first two emails that I got from people who were expressing an interest in this, the first rehearsal for this orchestra, for the Me Too Orchestra in Burlington, Vermont, were from young men who had been in the youth orchestra a few years prior. And now that they were in college or just out of college, they had recently been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Wow. And they said, Caroline, remember me? I knew you, you know, a few years ago in the, in the youth orchestra. Yeah, I got bipolar disorder and I'm really interested in what you and Mr. Brownstein are doing. Could I, you know, send me some more information? And I just thought, you know, man, like they miss, they miss the boat at the youth orchestra. Like I, you know, I, I remember trying to sort of say to them, like, are you kidding me? Like we, we've been over backwards in this, in our setting to accommodate and, and support and love our students who are struggling whether it's, you know, ADHD or, uh, you know, learning about their sexuality or, you know, anorexia. I mean, there were so many examples of, of kids that we saw who were growing up and needed their adult, the adults around them to support them. And yet when a grown man in his 50s said, I need some accommodations, yeah. I need support, people said, nope, forget it. I mean, what, what's that about, there, right? There is a thing about that, though, right? Like, once you're a grown-up, you're supposed to just have it all together. And that's yeah. so ridiculous because how many of us have it all together? I'm pretty sure it's nobody. I mean, uh, I suspect mm -mm. the Dalai Lama doesn't have it all together, and probably neither does the Pope. And, you know, most of the people that you think yeah. would have it all together don't because yeah. we're all yeah. human. But, yeah, we have this weird idea that if you're an adult, you're supposed to be able to put on the mask and be what you're supposed to be. Right. And yeah. Nope. It doesn't work that way. And boy, me too. I mean, we've just seen it over and over again, like over the years, it, people are so, um, so kind of gratefully surprised to walk into this room and, and be surrounded by people and not really know at first who has a diagnosis and who doesn't, because it's a, you know, it's a mixed uh, 
group of people. It was very important to us from the beginning that we include both people with and without a diagnosis. And I'll tell you, it's because I had that voice in my head of my of my staff members saying to me, we think this guy has a mental illness and we don't know how to work with that. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I mean, that's, first of all, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't understand that. It was, it was such a ridiculous thing to say, but then I thought, you know, for so many people, they might be thinking that, but it's just because they don't know that they're already working with people who have mental right. illness. I mean, I don't care where you are in your church, in your doctor's office, in your office, in your 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 family reunion, like you are communicating, working with people who have mental illness. It's the stigma that keeps people from talking about it. Um, so it, it just seemed like such a such a ridiculous statement. But I thought, you know, here's a chance. If we if we re really want to make it our mission to erase stigma, we've got to have this beautifully integrated community of musicians. Um, where people who don't have a diagnosis are sitting right next to someone who does have, uh, you know, trauma or a dissociative disorder, schizophrenia, and they're working together. They're making something great together. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's a real temptation when people look at our Me Too movement and, and it's easy to kind of say, oh, great, this must be having such an impact on your musicians with, bipolar disorder and depression and anxiety. And I kind of sometimes feel like I have to, to also push people to, to consider the fact that it's having probably just as much of an impact on the people who never knew anyone or knew that they knew anyone with depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. You know, I've had people say, uh, being in this orchestra and making new friends, living with you know these various diagnoses, it's made me uh, a different kind of teacher. It's made me approach my family members in a different way. I I read the news in a different way. Um, you know, I, I I just I'm I'm constantly taking in streams of information about uh, you know the latest headlines and. Uh, stories about people living with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and really processing that in a way uh, that that involves greater understanding about the realities of living well with the diagnosis. Because the reality is most people don't know that you can live well with right. schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. They, you know, they think it's kind of, you get a diagnosis and it, that's, you know, trying to stay out of trouble. Right. Um, try to survive and try not try to survive. Try not to get into trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So so you know it's 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 really great to be making music with people who uh, are are willing to share their stories of living well with a diagnosis um, because we never hear those stories otherwise, right? I mean, nobody's right. writing a newspaper article or you know doing a TV show about people who you know the lawyer with schizophrenia who's winning cases and has a great home life and multiple degrees. And you don't hear the good stories. You only hear when yeah. somebody's experiencing their worst crisis in just, you know, a catastrophic way. And that's, that's such a small and rare occurrence, such a small percentage of cases. Um, and, and mental illness isn't constant. I mean, it's fluid, you know, people, 
people have good days, people have bad days. And and we try to make room for all of that within within our orchestras and ensembles, within our new chorus. I mean, we're expanding and trying to include more people. And um, it's just, you know, I can't imagine. I, I thought I had the best job in the world when I was working <laughs> with, with kids, with the youth orchestra. And now I'm like, yeah, you know, that, that was a great job for a long time, but I, I'll take this. I, because I think I'm a better person now. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a more well-rounded person. You know, I, I think I was pr- a pretty decent human being before, but I, I've now made room um, gladly in my life for so many people with such an array of stories and experiences. And that just makes me a richer person. Sure. Right? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Anytime you can do something like that, it's it's never a bad thing. I have no idea what the last question was that you asked me. I'm just I just okay. take off on the you're, you're just absolutely fine. <laughs> it's all good. But I, I, I do keep wondering, like you said that yeah. people showed up when you didn't when you weren't sure that it, that they would. Like, yeah. how did you get the word out and how many people actually came that first time? And was it mostly people who did have a diagnosis or was there a, a kind of a balance? Yeah. So we, you know, we, we, we did what everybody does. You know, we kind of announced in the calendar listings and we sent out a press release. And of course in Vermont, it was kind of, kind of big news because they all, everybody read about or heard about how. Ronald had been fired from this rather high profile job there. So when we kind of regrouped and announced our new initiative, there was, there were articles about it. And so the word spread and, you know, I created a little bitty email list and mailing list, um, you know, cobbled together from my various contacts from having been in the state for, you know, many years at that point. But um, we, we kind of argue about it now, Ronald and I, at, because we, didn't take great notes in the beginning. <laughs> I say there were 10 people at the first rehearsal. He tends to think there were maybe eight people. Um, it was small, but, but they, those people showed up and those right. people had stories and they were happy to be there. And even from that very first rehearsal, it was about 50, 50, in terms of people living with a diagnosis and people without. And that's been a, a really interesting thing to me is that over the years, that that ratio has kind of stayed the same. I mean, we've always, always made it our policy. We don't ask. Nobody has to share. People are at different periods in their lives. They have different employment issues, you know, where it may not be safe to share something. Uh, so we don't push that at all. But it is amazing how... Um, I think how kind of happy and relieved people are when they know they're in a safe space. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it really makes them want to open up. So I, in, in many ways, I feel like Ronald and I are kind of the keepers of, um, of that information. Uh, for both, you know, for the people that are willing to share it with the, with the orchestra and sometimes with the audiences, but then a lot of people who just kind of share it with us and and we keep that close and 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 treasure the fact that people trust us with it. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's been about 50-50 in terms of people with or without a diagnosis in all, all the groups and in all three of the states that we're operating now uh, in Vermont, Boston, Massachusetts, and Manchester, New Hampshire. 
And uh, the group grew to, you know, probably 20 people by the end of the first year. But man, you know, the first two or three years, it it was tough. I mean, we eventually grew to kind of a chamber orchestra size, Mm -hmm. you know, where he could do a Haydn symphony and we pretty much had parts covered and that kind of thing. But uh, the same thing happened when we, when we launched in Boston three or three or four years later, we thought, oh, it's such a big city and there's all these music schools. It'll be a much bigger beginning. Nope. Eight or 10 people, exactly the same cycle. Same thing in Manchester, New Hampshire. You know, I, I think, I mean, we've tried to kind of crack the nut on that one. Like what, why is that? What, what are we not doing? What can we do differently that would, that would get more people through the door when you first start something. But, you know, I, again, I think it's kind of getting into a community and kind of educating people about what it means. Um, you know, people kind of hear med- music for mental health and they're like, what, what is that? And the truth is you walk into one hour rehearsals, it looks like a rehearsal, mm-hmm. just any kind of rehearsal. <laughs> it's just that, you know, during the break, you might catch people talking about therapy or their meds, or you might not. Uh, but Beethoven is Beethoven. Well, we're rehearsing. Right. You know, it's for a lot of people, it's a time when they, they gratefully don't have to think about their diagnosis. You know, leave it at the door. You've entered a stigma-free zone. Focus on the music. Know that you're being supported. Like, that's that's the message, whether it's eight people in the rehearsal or 60. Yeah. And I'm wondering too, like, I think that there is something really powerfully curative about music, but I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm kind of imagining all of this and thinking how much of the effect of this program on the people in it is the music and how much is the environment that you've created and of course then there's also the fact that they're around a population that they might not interact with you know there's there's more going on in there there's than that. so but, many layers yeah. right I mean I feel like you could just peel back the onion constantly and and on top of everything you just mentioned it's kind of the interior uh layer of the orchestra but then the impact on the audience members, Mm -hmm. like what's happening there, you know, how much, and we've tried to actually measure kind of the impact that we have in stigma reduction in, in kind of the way people think about mental illness with our audiences. But I I do feel like that's one thing that we haven't, um, we haven't done yet really well in terms of just uh, really zeroing in on impact uh, on, on gauging our result, you know, our our ability to change people's minds about what it means to live with a diagnosis. Um, we have so much anecdotal evidence. And you mentioned kind of the science of music and how, you know, there, there probably is uh, someone who could, who, I'm sure there's someone who could tell you how playing Brahms affects your brain and makes mm-hmm. you healthier. And You know, Ronald and I just kind of said at the beginning of this journey, look, we're classical musicians. We're not therapists. We've been in a lot of therapy. We're going to lead this with our hearts. And I keep thinking, hopefully someday somebody's going to kind of swoop in and say, 
I'd like to study you. I'd like to really yeah. kind of, I'd like to peel back the layers and maybe put some science to all of this. Um, hasn't happened yet, but you know, we're just going to keep doing what we do and <laughs> collect our, collect our heartwarming stories and, uh, you know, wait for the, maybe for the science, for the quantitative stuff to, to follow up hopefully soon. Yeah. And I mean, as interesting as the quantitative stuff is, I think the qualitative stuff is really where it's at. So. I, I mean, that's, that's what I'm digging. That's what I'm loving. Yeah. Absolutely. And you do have so many great stories that, you know, you made a documentary, which is amazing. Yeah. Both that you made it and <laughs> the documentary is amazing. <laughs> How oh, did that thank come you. about? You know, it's funny. We, um, we try to perform in a lot of non-traditional venues to include prisons. You know, we, we play in correctional facilities. And I was scooting around online one day looking at various things, and I somehow came across this documentary about the world's only chorus in a men's prison that is allowed to leave the prison to perform and I just immediately you know like went down the rabbit hole like this is such a cool thing and so there was an email for the uh the producer of the film and I thought you know I've got to see the film the trailer was riveting so I sent I sent her an email and uh I guess you know I had my email signature there and a link to our website and kind of said you know we 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 have performed in prisons I'd love to get a copy of this film because I think it would you know, inspire us and maybe inform our, our work with the prisons. And she, she wrote me back and she said, um, I just was kind of checking out what you're doing online. Could we talk? And she <laughs> called me and she said, has anybody ever documented your work? And I'm like, uh, no, no, no. And yeah. So it started that way. I mean, it was, it started by accident. It was me saying, I love what I love the story of this this prison chorus and uh, catching Margie Friedman, one of the film's co-directors uh, on the phone um, from her home in uh, in California and her just saying, wow, you know, I've got I've got a friend, Barbara Multerwellen, and she and I are looking to co-produce another film. We love to do social justice, important uh, stories. And I think. Me too could be exactly what we've been looking for. And yes, yeah. So they spent three years kind of flying in and out of Burlington, Vermont, and mm. Boston, Massachusetts, and and following some of the musicians, you know, in and out of rehearsals and uh, a lot of time in our small apartment and in our car and, and just capturing <laughs> the stories. And and yeah, it was, you know, it was it it has been really fabulous to to have that that part of the growth of Me Too documented in that way and and still being shared. I mean, we're still doing screenings like all over the country with um, college campuses, with, uh, you know, mental health groups, kind of share, continuing to share our stories and and that, that beautiful film. Yeah. It, it's a totally amazing film. And and it feels unfair to tell people that they should watch the documentary for the stories. We, I think we should tell a story or two if, if there's, you know, one or two that come to mind that you'd like to share. Sure, sure. Well, I'm, the film is called Orchestrating Change. Um, and uh, it, it takes a 
pretty good dive into Ronald's history, you know, his journey through Juilliard and, and conducting through Europe and then founding Me Too. But I think also part of what's so compelling is the way the film, filmmakers followed some of the key musicians in the orchestra. Um, one of the musicians who's featured is Dylan. Uh, and Dylan, at that time, was a, a bassist in the Burlington-based Me Too Orchestra. And we, we, we see Dylan playing in rehearsals. And then we, we kind of follow Dylan as he is hospitalized and actually goes into back into the correctional facility. Um, he got into trouble. Dylan has, uh, you know, to this day, has ongoing issues with substance misuse and, um, you know, not always making the best choices about who he's hanging out with. And so uh, in the film, we see him actually getting released from prison and coming back to rehearsal. And I was so glad that they were there, that the filmmakers were there to, to film that scene where he, he comes back into the rehearsal. Because, you know, I used to kind of beat myself up over the fact that we couldn't, we can't really keep our musicians from getting sick mm -hmm. or, or maybe landing in a correctional facility. You know, it's one night a week. There's a limit to the impact we can have. Um, on their lives. And I felt really guilty, you know, like somehow we let him down, um, that this happened to him, you know, and, and that it's happened to other people where they're in the hospital and whatever, like what could, more could we have, have done? And now I think more about how we bring people back, how we become the safe landing place. And I was so glad that they filmed Dylan coming back to the orchestra and the warmth of the musicians who were so happy to see him. And, you know, we all learned so much through that process about what it means to kind of re-enter after being in a facility where you haven't been able to be hugged mm -hmm. in months. Um, you know, the, the toll that that takes on a person. Um, again, you know, peeling back that onion, there's just so many layers to what we're all learning about each other, learning about our mental health systems, our correctional systems. Um, who knew orchestral work could could take take <laughs> us you know into these into these kinds of discussions. But um yeah, so I, I think that you know that journey in the film being able to follow Dylan kind of, you know, during the good times and the bad was really uh was was very important, uh, you know, a story that needed to be told. Uh, and we also see Mark, who's one of our clarinetists, who, um, yeah, he, his mental health deteriorated over the course of filming and he ended up being hospitalized. And, you know, the, as the filmmakers always say, they could have made kind of a fluff film that just showed the great side of the orchestra. And and, and to Merrick's credit, to Dylan's credit, you know, they they said, no, it's okay you know, tell the real story because otherwise it, you know, it kind of discredits the whole film. Like we, we want people to know that, yeah, sure. We're going to have bad days. We're going to have bad periods, but we'll come back, you know, we'll, we'll get back on our feet. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just so glad that, that you found the, the film compelling and that we've gotten such good feedback about it. Um, you know, honestly, for, for Ronald, for me, for the musicians, we're just kind of doing what we do. 
and it was just uh, really like so fortunate that these incredible uh, women, these filmmakers in in LA, said, "Yeah, we think this is worth documenting," and and eventually got it on PBS. It's incredible. Yeah, is it streaming anywhere that people can find it on their own? You know, I there is a site where I think you can pay like a small fee to stream it now. If you go to the website orchestratingchangethefilm.com, all the information is there about streaming, about, you know, purchasing a DVD, all of that. So, um, yeah, that's, okay. that's the best source for information. Well, I'll put that link in the show notes because I really hope that people will go watch it. I think that it's it's eye-opening just to watch it even though I know that's not the same as actually participating in it. It's, it's just, I don't know if uplifting is quite the right word because like you say, it's not, it's not fluffy and everything is wonderful. And yet there's, there's just something about it that is so human and so deep. And I hate to keep saying amazing, but it's the word that keeps coming to mind. Oh, I uh, so yeah. human and so deep. I mean, that is, yeah. that's, that's beautiful to hear. It is. I mean, you just, it's, it's something that yeah, I would never have thought that it would exist in the first place, but then to watch the story, see Ronald's story and see how, how that turned into this is just, you know, fascinating and, and inspiring also in the sense of, I hope that somebody who's watching it will come up with an idea to do their own thing that goes out and does yeah. something that also has this kind of impact just because yeah. you watch it and you think, oh, Hey, there are other things that we could do, you know, that I hadn't thought about before that maybe, you know, somebody can start something else, you know, a different kind of program, but something that, that has the same kind of intent you know, that there there is music that you don't have to be a total perfectionist who never gets nervous and never never struggles with anything in order to perform, you know, in that Yeah, right. Well, and, you know, one of the things that we talk about when we do screenings of the film and we have these panel discussions is this idea that we've, <clears throat> we've somehow, you know, managed to create a stigma-free zone in, the, in our orchestras, in our chorus, but why can't we create sticker-free zones in other places? You know, how is right. this idea, just take it and apply it to wherever it's needed. What, you know, your knitting circle, your book club, your, uh, you know, whatever. Like, your office. take it to the places where you exist, including your office. Right, right. I, I mean, it, it becomes so clear that it's like, the stigma is really not necessary. Right, yeah. You know, the, the stigma comes from places that aren't helpful. And it's just not necessary. We talk a lot about the the power of our signage. You know, we put up signs when we perform, when we rehearse that say you are now entering a stigma-free zone. And the musicians talk about how that's, you know, there's kind of two sides to that. Like one is that you see that sign and you remember you can relax. You're in a safe space. But you also remember that that's an expectation that you're going to also take care of the people around you. So it's like the gut check on two different levels. And, um, you know, at first it, Ronald and I were kind of modeling the behavior that we kind of wanted to see in other people. And now, I mean, 
for years now, I've seen that just modeled right back at us. You know, it's not like we have to kind of set the example. People know what that means when they are in a Me Too uh, rehearsal or performance. And, you know, I, I just feel like, yeah, why don't we see that sign in other places? Yeah. Gosh, what what if what if church was a stigma-free zone? Ooh. Ooh, can you imagine? And and I'll say that, you know, as someone I I I grew up down south where church was it was really churchy. And uh you know, I think a lot of my anxiety disorder honestly was um was kind of kicked off by some of the stuff that I learned in in my church growing up and Boy, it was not a stigma-free zone. Uh, more recently, I've been in physicians' offices with my husband, uh, again, who has bipolar disorder, and they were not stigma-free zones. I you bet. know, I've seen I've seen him get talked down to by physicians because of, and it, clearly, it's because of his diagnosis mm-hmm. or because he presents as someone who is, uh, you know, not his brain is not typical like mine. He's an atypical thinker. And, uh, you know, it's when, when someone kind of goes to tell me the information rather than telling him as a patient or as the person that they're serving. And it's, it's, yeah, this is a stigma free zone. Let's do better. You know, it needs to be said in so many settings. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's just, there are so many excuses that we have to forget that other people are people, you know, whether right. it's mental health or, you know, different religion or somebody right. who's been in prison or whatever it is. The know, invisible condition. Right. Right. In addition to all of the visible ones that we also use as excuses. Exactly. Well, yes, <laughs> exactly. As we see I mean, in the headlines absolutely. every day anymore. Every but day. yeah, it's like there, there's, there are so many excuses to just forget the fundamental truth that people are people. Yeah. And I think, you know, we all have bad days. I'm certainly, um, I can be, I can have a shorter fuse on some days, but I like to think that, you know, if, if, if needed, I, I will remember, you know, my core humanity and express yeah. that in a, in a good way. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's just that's something we're working on constantly um, through through music, through bringing this diverse set of people together with a common goal. Um, you know, playing music and then also listening to each other's stories and and practicing being good humans. Yeah. I mean, I I think that that is amazing. And the fact that you have managed to start three different orchestras. Is there going to be a fourth? Will they be everywhere? <laughs> so I'm sitting down this summer with, with, with my strategic planning committee for my board of directors. And I, I won't rule out a fourth, um, you know, as we look to the next three years. Um, it's awfully tempting to say, you know, how do we just continue to expand in, especially in New England, you know, where it's, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, we hear from people all the time that, that want some sort of Me Too program close to where they are. And it's, it's a bit of a challenge to, to duplicate without us having, you know, funding and being kind of on site and, and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, 
right now I'm thinking our 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 burgeoning little orchestra in Manchester, New Hampshire, once that has uh, gotten just a little bit more traction, you know, in a year or two, it would be really easy to do what we did in in Vermont, where we hired a new conductor, a new manager, people who are so talented and so just um, connected to the mission and vision of this group. We could put a team in place in Manchester and who knows, maybe Ronald and I start hitting the road down to Rhode Island every week um, yeah. and starting there. Or maybe it's maybe that that next startup is is another chorus. You know, we've gotten so much joy this spring from from just having a, a kind of a short startup season of, of our first coral program and seeing how that really, you know, that that eliminates yet another layer of. Uh, accessibility because you don't have to know how to play the bassoon or the cello or or the flute. You just walk in because everybody has a voice. So uh, like that is just bringing us incredible joy to see, um, to see even more people having access to music for mental health. And uh, I think that's going to be a really important part of our vision for the future. Yeah, and as somebody who's been a choral singer her whole life, I'm so happy that you have chorus. <laughs> well, it just makes sense, right? I mean, it, it had to be. It I had mean, to be. And we, we had to delay because of COVID. I mean, we were planning to do this a few years ago, but um, yeah. And now you can do, sense, you know, yeah. big choral symphonies and things like that, too. Oh, my gosh. Before, so, Don't yeah. even get me started. Yeah. yeah. It's it's going to be so much fun. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm so excited for where this is going. And I'm just also so happy that you exist in the first place. Oh, thank so. you so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's a good place to be. We, we really, we all love the work. We really do. Yeah. Well, I hope you'll keep us all posted on, on what you're doing. If you start a fourth one or start another chorus or, you know, branch out in other ways that people who are farther away could can find a, a place there. Cause I think it's, I think it's fabulous. So thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, there's always info on our website, on our social media channels, like people can always keep up, keep up with us. But um, yeah, as I said, we're kind of gearing up for strategic planning and this is, this is what I love, like dreaming, <laughs> you know, it's, it's when you really get to sit yeah. down and go, you know what, what, what are your ideas? What, how can we have an even bigger impact, engage even more people and really, you know, in our own small way, try to change the world for the better. That's well, exciting. Definitely doing that part. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much for coming and sharing this story with me today. Cause it's, it's, uh, I keep saying the same things, but just because it's true, it's great. <laughs> 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 thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's so much fun to talk about it and, and to uh, kind of revisit the path. So I appreciate having the opportunity to do that. That's our show. Thanks so much to my guest, Caroline Wooden, and to you. Please leave a review for this episode. There's a link right in your podcast app. And in it, tell us about a time when being fully seen made a difference to you. If you've enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thanks so much. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com and tell me what you loved. 
And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at fycuriosity.com. And there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. Thanks.